Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to At the End of the Day podcast. I'm Hannah Sung, and in every episode, I speak with friends who have stories and experiences that I like to learn from. Today, I'm so excited to bring you a conversation with an old friend of mine. Hello? Hello. Hi, Eliza. You have a very fancy microphone there. It's very professional looking. Do you like it? Mm -hmm. I'm a professional. (laughs) I know. I know. You're always professional. (laughs) I wasn't always professional because when I knew Eliza Reed back in the 90s, we were just two students at the University of Toronto Trinity College. Today, Eliza is the first lady of Iceland. No, she is. That's not a question. She went from being a student in Canada to a student at Oxford in England, where she met the love of her life, Gudni Johannesson. And then they moved to Iceland together. She built a career as a writer and he became president. And through it all, they are raising a family together. So there, you're caught up on Eliza Reed's life. And today I wanted to talk to her specifically about how to jump into a whole new kind of life, which is what she's done by learning a language and culture and starting over in a different country. Now Eliza has a new book called Secrets of the Sprakar, Iceland's Extraordinary Women and How They Are Changing the World. Reading this book, I learned a lot about Iceland. So I started our conversation with a quick true or false. Okay, true or false, everyone knows everyone in Iceland. False, but close. I would say one or two degrees away. At least people who are born in Iceland and raised here, you always know someone in common. Mm-hmm. Because the population is quite small for a country. It's 350,000 people. Yeah. Teeny, tiny. Teeny. True or false, Iceland has a very homogeneous population. False now. In the mid-90s, when you and I were making mixtapes together, probably about 1% of the country, if not less, were foreign-born. But now there's over 15% of the country that is foreign-born. So that diversity has happened rapidly and recently, and there's less sort of ethnic diversity. I mean, the largest group by far are people from Poland. There's still a relatively small percentage of people of color who are living there. But again, it's much higher than I think people might think. True or false? I actually already know the answer to this. I just want to say this out loud. (laughs) Is it true that the saying, the icing on the cake in Icelandic is the raisin on the end of the hot dog? True. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I just, that was one of the moments where I burst out laughing, like, what kind of a saying is the raisin on the end of the hot dog? Seriously, because it's not like we put raisins on hot dogs in Iceland. (laughs) Okay, FYI, there is no further raisin content or hot dog content in today's episode. I'm sorry. But Eliza and I do talk about her new book and on the general theme of making a whole new life for yourself. We get into all of that. But since we haven't spoken in about 20 years, we started with some reminiscing. Here's my conversation with Eliza Reed. I remember you as having your finger on the pulse of 
what was cool and trendy far more than I ever did. And back in the last millennium, we used to make mixtapes for each other a lot. Oh my gosh. And you made me a mixtape. Oh my gosh. It was some of your favorite songs and musicians that you were listening to, none of whom I'd ever heard of, but I still have a cassette <laughs> somewhere. But one of them was the singer Bjork, who had just of come course. out with this album yeah. that made her famous. And I often think back to that because even then, you know, I didn't know Bjork was from Iceland or it wasn't something that registered with me. And then moving to Iceland where having a Bjork sighting is kind of a rite of passage. I always think of you and how you were the person to introduce me to Bjork's music. Oh my gosh, that is such a crazy memory. Oh, it's, I have really good memories. It was fun. I have a glass of water with me and I swear to God, this mug of water I got in my frosh week of first year university. Whoa. It's a one pint beer glass, I guess, but it is holding water at this moment. A beer glass is so emblematic of our experience, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> that, that is uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I have to say that when I heard that you had become the first lady of Iceland, (laughs) it it was really delightfully surprising. Can we kind of chart the course of how you went from a farm outside Ottawa to the world of global leadership? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have predicted it either. It's what makes it such a fun story, I think. And I guess if we start after Trinity, where we met together, and then I went to Oxford for graduate school, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was finished. And there was one Icelandic man studying there, now my husband. And so Canadians were a dime a dozen, but Icelanders were very exotic, obviously, because nobody really knew anything about Iceland at that time. And we started dating. Our first date was actually because we were both on the rowing crew and they were fundraising and had this competition where the guys mostly had a series of like cups at a party and the girls would pay a pound and get these little tickets that we'd write our names on and then put them in different cups. And the guys would draw a name out of a cup and have to take that person out on a date. And I kind of liked my husband. I thought, well, obviously it wasn't my husband yet, didn't he? And thought he was interesting and intriguing. And so I kind of thought this was my moment to sort of carpe diem. So I put almost all of the tickets that I bought in his cup. And so inevitably he had to draw my name. It was probably the only name that was there. And he took me <laughs> up for a really nice dinner. And the rest is history, at least for, as how we met. But he did a PhD there. And so we lived in England for five years and then moved to Iceland. He has a daughter from his first marriage. So we never were discussing, would we go to Canada? Would we go to Iceland? Iceland was the place. And we just set up this wonderful life here in the country. I was working first for a small software company. Then I started doing freelance writing and other projects. And my husband was working at the university. Then we started having children. We had four children in just under six years. I founded a writer's retreat. And so we were both doing lots and lots of work. And then in 2016, there was a presidential election scheduled. And in April that year was when there was a Panama Papers scandal about various political leaders around the world who had money in offshore accounts. And Iceland's prime minister at the time was implicated in the scandal, hadn't done anything illegal by Icelandic law, but it, it played out poorly. And it was a huge news story here in Iceland, of course. And my husband, who's an expert on Iceland's constitution and political history, was the pundit that went on television to talk about it live as the story was unfolding. What was the prime minister going to do? Was he going to resign? Would there be elections, et cetera? And 
I think people just saw him right at this time when they were discussing the presidential elections and thought, well, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. And the role of the president in Iceland isn't political. So he he was being nonpartisan, which is kind of what you want in a president here. And literally people started calling our house and just saying, hey, has he thought about running for president? He should He should really do that. And that was in early April. And the election was in late June. And he won. And then he was reelected last year. His story is as wild as yours, because it's incredible to think of someone becoming president of a country without having had like lifelong political designs on that position. Yeah. What did you do afterwards? Were you just in shock? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a crazy feeling. I think the first is the feeling all of a sudden, which happened really over a matter of days of like, should you try to do this? Should we go for this? You know, we both had good jobs. So we kind of thought if he runs and he loses, then we can just go back to our lives and that's okay. And we thought about, well, how would this affect our children and the family? And again, in Iceland, people are pretty good generally about allowing you to have your own private life. So we thought, no, we hopefully wouldn't ruin our children if he does this. And so it was just a moment when the stars had aligned and we thought, well, how many times in life do you think, why didn't I try? I should have tried this or not. We thought, well, if he tries and doesn't succeed, that's fine. But if he thinks he could do a good job of it and we have a chance, why not go for it and see what happens? And we kind of threw ourselves in and didn't really have time to think about it all that much. I mean, our children were then two, four, six, and eight years old. And I called my mom in Canada and said, hey, would you like to come over to Iceland for a couple of weeks and babysit our four <laughs> kids because Glennie's going to run for president. We're going to drive her on Iceland campaign. And she said, oh, great. <laughs> she was really into it. And so she and my dad flew over and they had to, you know, really adjust to this country where they don't speak the language and they don't know where everything is. And they just went for it. And we went on the road and spoke and did campaign events. It was really an incredible, incredible experience. It was a big emotional roller coaster, as, as you can imagine. I love the way you describe that phone call home to your parents. And it seems like your mom can just roll with anything because you said she was like, okay, great. We'll be there. Yeah. She's much more spontaneous than I am. (laughs) Well, your parents are very lovable because although I've never met them, your brother has written about them and your family, your brother, writer Ian Reid. Both of you are very funny writers, actually. I think he's more well-known for writing thrillery type of stuff, but he's very funny and so are you. There were so many times I laughed from the observational humor in your book, and I think a lot of it comes from being an outsider in your country that you've embraced and you clearly love Iceland so much. I want to talk about Secrets of the Sprakar. Maybe first I'll ask you to explain the term sprakar. So sprakar is an Icelandic word. It's the plural of the word spraki, and it means outstanding women. And it's a grammatically masculine word, but it only describes women. And if we think about the English language and all the words that we have to describe only women, I would like to see if you can name any that are positive, because I can't. Oh, that's a depressing thought. It is, but we have a word in Icelandic for it. And it is very obscure here. So even people in Iceland didn't know it very well. But I think it's hmm. it's just such a wonderful word that I thought we need to use it more when we're speaking in Icelandic. And we might as well bring it into English. Like English also took the words geyser and berserk from the Icelandic language. So I feel like oh, we can wow. take the word sprekar. I had no idea of those origins of those words. Well, you know, I, I would love to know from your 
North American perspective, how is a woman's experience of life different in Iceland? So I think, well, I obviously have only my own story to tell. And I was in my 20s when I moved to Iceland. So all my children were born here and I don't have direct firsthand experience to compare, say, something like being on maternity leave as with elsewhere. But my sense is that women are so involved in many facets of society, you know, in public life, in politics, in governance as leaders. You know, right now we have women who are prime minister, various other ministries, chief medical officer, bishop of the Church of Iceland, head of the police, head of the Travel Industry Association, you know, lots of different sectors and visible women in positions. And I think one of the things I like too is the fact that when we don't see that, when there's a panel and it's just men, there's always a bit of an outcry because people are really vigilant about wanting to move in the right direction. And and you don't move in the right direction unless you are vigilant. You know, you can't sort of take your eyes off the prize at all here or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And do you explain in your storytelling how it's the personal experiences and the culture and the history and the policy that all have to be in a big mix for things to move in a positive direction when it comes to, say, systemic sexism, you know, at work, for example, like you told a great story about a woman when you were so young and you just arrived and you were passing by the boardroom. And can you tell that story? I think you know which one I'm talking about. I do. I do. So I worked when I first moved to Iceland for a software company, a startup. So it was very male oriented. It was a lot of, I guess, stereotypical computer nerds and lots of jeans and t-shirts. And I think I was the fourth woman who was working there out of somewhere around 25 people. But the CEO was a woman and the chair of the board of the company was a woman. And the board was meeting one day and this woman, the chair of the board, had just returned from her maternity leave. She'd had her second child. And as I walked by, I always remember she was nursing her baby while she was chairing the meeting. And nobody cared, even in this very sort of stereotypically male environment. Nobody was saying anything. Nobody was making any jokes or raising any eyebrows or anything like that. It was just completely natural and normal. And I remember thinking, okay, if this is how it is in Iceland, this is a pretty good place to be. I love that story because it makes me think about all the times I've been in the office and there's been a baby there at work. It's never the real life of feeding a baby or doing something with a baby. It's always a little bit decorative. Like the baby comes through (laughs) in a stroller Mm -hmm. and everybody like gathers around, like we're looking at something really precious, which we are, but like, that's it. It better not make a peep. It better not, yeah. you know, and then you leave, you wheel it in and you wheel it out like a display. Yeah. I mean, even in Iceland, there's still kinds of double standards. Like as a woman, if you go to meetings and it, it's one of those times when it doesn't work out, you know, when the baby's really crying or there's a diaper explosion or something like that, that you get a bit of a feeling like, she didn't bring the right things with her or she didn't time the meeting well. But if my husband had gone to a meeting with the baby, just showing up with the baby, they'd be like, oh, you're amazing. What a, what a dad. This is incredible. He's bringing the baby to his meeting. And the bar is so much lower for men in terms of what they can achieve as parents, mm-hmm. which I think, I think does men a disservice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, something that I really could see in your book was how active a parent your partner is and how you feel that that is very normal. And I hope it's normalized in Iceland. And and part of it is the, the policy of parental leave. 
Yeah. And social supports financially, like something that really struck me that you mentioned in passing is that daycare and university fees aren't a huge thing in your mind when you first have a baby. Like for us, my experience in Toronto, the first thing we did when we had a baby was open an RESP. Mm-hmm. And then you start to get into daycare and you think daycare is more expensive than university. <laughs> Financially, it's so difficult to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the policies that give you kind of that financial freedom to have babies. Mm -hmm. You're right. They are important. I mean, in a nutshell, certainly from a young age, I would say three things that help there are state-sponsored parental leave programs. So the government is paying it rather than an employer. So if you're self-employed, you know, as long as you're paying into the system, you're entitled to this leave. Secondly, then there's really heavily subsidized childcare, as you said, and that's even additionally subsidized either if you're a student or a single parent or on disability benefits or something like that, but also if you have siblings in the system. That's not the same in all cities, but it just depends on on where you're living. But there are substantial discounts for siblings. And then the third thing, once they get to elementary school, is that after-school activities are also subsidized to a degree, to the extent that probably every child should be able to take one after-school activity, whether that's learning to play the flute or going to archery classes and have that covered for them. So all of those things absolutely encourage families and make it easier to afford to have children. But one of the things I'm trying to say in my book as well is that trying to achieve gender equality isn't just about having policies. It absolutely helps, but it's also about seeing the world and experiencing the world with those kind of diversity glasses on. So it also has to do with looking at the media that we are consuming and how our arts and culture and sports are reflected in this and feeling as women that we can go forward and use our voices in whatever chosen career that we have or leaning on each other for support or not forgetting groups, not allowing just sort of educated, ethnically Icelandic women of a certain age to achieve equality, but remembering all groups and and not leaving any groups behind. All of those things factor into trying to achieve more gender equality. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's so much about what you're saying today and in your book that make Iceland seem like a dream lifestyle-wise. <laughs> and also when I picture it in my mind and through the descriptions in your book, it just looks like a travel brochure too. But based on a couple of things that you've already touched on in this conversation, the whole world is going through a really tumultuous period. 
so many terrible things happening right now. And I just wanted to ask you about, you mentioned diversity earlier mm-hmm. in the conversation. You mentioned how quickly the demographics of Iceland have changed in just a couple mm-hmm. of decades. What is the anti-racism movement like in Iceland right now from your perspective? Well, I have to say that I'm, I'm also coming at this. Yes, I am an immigrant, but I'm really fall into the most privileged category of immigrant. You know, I'm this white woman, educated, English is my first language, heterosexual, married to an Icelander. So I don't have a lot of the challenges or experiences that a lot of other immigrants have. My sense, and also having spoken to people, is that overall, when it comes to immigration, Icelanders want to be open-minded and welcoming. And and there is one statistic that I quote in the book about a survey that was done talking about how the, the locally born population feels towards immigration. And Iceland finished second in that survey only to Canada. So hmm. I think overall, there is this positive feeling that immigration is good for the country, increased multiculturalism and diversity is good for the country. Having said that, also because that diversity has increased so rapidly so quickly, there are a lot of microaggressions that especially immigrants of color experience. The example that I use in my book there is the the lawyer that I interview who's originally from Jamaica, who moved to Iceland two decades ago, I guess, when it was like 1% of the population who were foreign born. And she's black from Jamaica. And she said when she was there, people would want to touch her hair in a store or they would come up to her and say, I just want you to know you're not the first black person I've met. Let me tell you about the first time I met a black person. And they were kind of trying to be, you know, friendly and open minded, but they clearly had a memory of the very first moment in their lives that this happened and thought that my friend would be very interested to know about it. So that still exists to a degree. And I think the way that that gets fixed is is talking about it as we remain and increase as a diverse society. You know, that story of the Black lawyer in the grocery store and people wanting to tell her about their first experience meeting a Black person really just threw me back to the Provost Lodge, or maybe it's not the Provost Lodge, but it's where the Provost lived at Trinity College. There was a Sherry event or something for student leaders with oh my gosh alumni yeah or donors donors yeah but it was basically you throw in a bunch of students with some older folks and you would mix and mingle in a very like stuffy and pristine room and I think it was more like bribe students with free alcohol oh absolutely and I think in the beginning I was just curious I was like what is this thing I didn't even know what Sherry was honestly <laughs> and I went. And there was a woman, I just found myself in a conversation with a woman who went on for a long time about her Japanese exchange student. And I didn't know why she was talking to me about her Japanese exchange student, but I was very politely nodding and listening. Mm -hmm. And then I asked some sort of question like, oh, well, how long is she staying? (laughs) And this woman said, oh, no, this was a long time ago, like maybe before I was born. (laughs) And I realized that These kinds of experiences happen across time and across geography, and people just need to catch up. Thank God we have things like the internet and books, and people can talk (laughs) about their experiences so that other curious individuals might say, I don't want to be that person who fumbles and stumbles through life, offending everybody possible with my, you know, uninformed ways. Exactly. 
at the beginning of our conversation, I'd said that what I really wanted to talk about with you is how to plunge into a totally new kind of life, how to make your own new life so successfully because it seems like you have a very rich life with friends and family and love and work satisfaction and all the things. So at the end of the day, I'd love to know if you are in a position where you you are going to build a whole new life, what are the ways that you can approach it? That's a great question. And uh, thank you. And I mean, I do I do feel so incredibly fortunate in my life. I guess two things that I would say when I think about one, when I, when I moved to Iceland and obviously I moved to Iceland because my husband is Icelandic, but it was very important for me that I may have moved to the country for him, but I wanted to stay for me. And so I I kind of went with this winning is not an option attitude, which really helped push through the sort of smaller culture shock issues at the beginning. And then, you know, I I was laid off from my job after a year. And again, if I kind of had that attitude, I would have just left, you know, but I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. all right, I don't have a job. I need to get a new job. And I really tried at the beginning to get a job that I like to develop my own circle of friends and my own interests and hobbies, aside from those of my husband, who of course I, I loved spending time with, but I wanted to build up a whole life for myself. I think that that kind of helped when the going got rough because the going is always going to get rough for everything in life. That's, that's just life. And the other thing I think is kind of this idea of you're supposed to do it all. You're supposed to have an amazing and fulfilling life and you're supposed to be fantastic at your job, which is both challenging and super, super busy. And you're meant to have a perfect household and a wonderful marriage and perfectly dressed kids who only have a very limited amount of screen time and who do all kinds of extracurricular activities that they never complain about having to go to. And your house is perfectly tidy and you know you have great clothes and you look really good all the time and everything is perfect. And nobody has that. I think there's no right or wrong, you know, which things that you should prioritize. It's just that you have to be okay with the decisions that you make because we spend so much time thinking, oh, you know, I haven't, I didn't read a hundred books last year. Why didn't I do that? And I haven't seen my friends often enough. And, you know, and I had four kids at home. I never went to the gym and I had like one pair of shoes and that's just what you have to do, right? So we have to kind of be okay with, with dropping balls sometimes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And priorities can shift at different times too, right? Absolutely. And are different for everybody. Yeah. What some person chooses to prioritize can be different from somebody else. I think it's really kind of feeling comfortable with your own life goals and objectives and and how you're moving towards them. Mm -hmm. Well, Eliza, I want to thank you so much for your openness and your humor and wisdom in the book, which I enjoyed so much, and for taking the time to reconnect with me. I'm so proud of everything you've done. I have no claim in it, but I am proud of everything you've done since our training. No, I am super, you know, you've done so much. I am always name dropping you when I'm like, oh, oh you know, Hannah and I, we went to university together. So no, no, it's great. I was been really looking forward to this conversation and, and looking forward to talking to you. And I'm really glad you enjoyed the book. Somebody, somebody here told me it's like just sitting down for a cup of coffee with me. And I hope that that's what readers feel that they feel like they've just chatted with me. It really is just like spending time with you, which for me is wild because it's been 20 years. So (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's so kind. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. I'm going to find that mixtape now and be all nostalgic for a little while. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. Like when you said, I have a story, it's like, I just, (gasps) what, what will it be? I know. 
Thank you for listening to At the End of the Day. Share this podcast with a friend or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Olivia Trono and me, Hannah Sung. Theme music for this show is a song called Commentators, written by Jeremy Singer and performed by Hank. At the End of the Day is brought to you by a team, editorial assistant Francis Kim, newsletter editor Laura Hensley, and if you are contributing to the Patreon for the show, thank you. That includes Chuck, Carla, and Carla, two Carlas, Michal, Kat, Karen, Andre, and Danny. Your support of this show is what brings it to life. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to my newsletter and find our Patreon link at endoftheday.ca. That's E-N-D-O-F-T-H-E-D-A-Y dot C-A. This podcast is part of the Media Girlfriends Network. You can find us at mediagirlfriends.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 